thank you, Roger, for that generous introduction, and thanks to all of you for joining us tonight on this uh, rainy weather. Um, my talk will probably take about 40 minutes, so I'll promise to get you home before the nor'easter really hits. Um, uh, I was delighted to have this chance to return to Hagley, where, as Roger mentioned, I had a couple of um, uh, research grants, and I also had a chance to participate in one of those seminars where you uh, send a paper and uh, get torn apart. No, no, no. Get a, <laughs> a, a great conversation and, and feedback. So it's, it's really a delight to return now that the book is out. Great. Thank you. Um, and thanks also to Carol Lockman, who always makes these trips here uh, go quite smoothly. So tonight, um, I'll be talking about Bulldozer. Uh, the book is the first um, scholarly history of this machine. But it's also an excavation, uh, if you will, uh, of the means and meanings of building demolition and land clearance in the post-war United States. Um, in the book, I ask how post-war Americans came to equate destruction with progress. So the structure of the talk is I'll give you a, a brief overview of the project. There are three key parts, and I'll walk you through those. And then I'll dig more deeply into one of the cross-cutting themes of the book, which is particularly appropriate to Hagley and its collections. Um, that is the intertwined influence of the military and build bulldozer businesses um, in the making of the post-war landscape, and in particular, the mo making of post-war American suburbs. So let me begin. Now, the shape of the American landscape changed dramatically in the post-war uh, decades, and post-World War II is, is what I mean. Um, in order to clear space for new suburban housing, interstate highways, and urban renewal development, wrecking companies demolished buildings and earth-moving contractors leveled land at an unprecedented pace and scale. I've calculated, for example, that during the 1960s alone, demolition crews tore down one out of every 17 dwelling units nationwide. That was just the average. Um, in some places, like New Haven, um, where, which I'll talk about a little bit, it was one in six. And many of these losses came from urban renewal, which displaced nearly a million families and over 100,000 businesses by 1980. At the same time, each of the more than 46,000 miles of interstate highways, on average, consumed the homes of approximately 20 individuals and roughly 40 acres of land. Uh, clearance for the development of suburban housing, shopping, and industry just added further acreage to the toll. So while the post-war decades, I think, are well-known um, as an era of rapid American growth and construction, they were equally significant for the celebration and implementation of large-scale destruction. The two went hand-in-hand. -hand. The post-war period is exceptional with a within a long history of the dis creative destruction of the American landscape for the realization of large-scale clearance on a nationwide level. Remember, I said that average figure across the country. Lots, hundreds of cities participated in these urban renewal programs, uh, experienced suburban growth, and interstate highways. So individual cities do these things um, quite dramatically still today. But it was a really a national phenomenon at this time. Now, I argue that a culture of clearance, that is the ideology, technology, policy, and practice of large-scale destruction, made possible this vast remaking of city and country. And further, I argue that this culture of clearance was powerfully rooted in the preceding experience of war. And here you see international harvester bulldozers uh, lined up to be sent out to the Pacific Front during the war. Although the proliferation of bull the bulldozer in scholarly texts, beginning in at least the early 1960s, uh, might suggest that this literary terrain is well covered, 
The term itself、um, has served more often as a symbol of protest than as a subject of inquiry. Authors of works like those that you see pictured here name the machine as the enemy of minority urban residents, elite preservationists, and suburban environmentalists. But they've not typically investigated how the machine worked, or why it initially appealed to so many mayors, developers, engineers, and even the general public. I'll talk a little bit about the celebration of this machine. So, through a variety of sources, sources ranging from military logbooks to the archives of construction equipment manufacturers, popular and trade journals, redevelopment agency records, the census, oral histories, popular movies, and children's books, I placed the machine itself front and center. Then I traced the unraveling of the bulldozer's broad base of support as its destructive process played out on the ground. In this way, I explore a subject that's previously remained hidden in plain sight. Think, for example, of the before and after images that dominate the visual iconography of the post-war built environment.、Uh, this is an image pairing that appeared in Progressive Architecture magazine. It shows an aerial, aerial views of the Oak Street neighborhood in New Haven, Connecticut. Before and after urban renewal,、um, on the left is the dense mixed-use area of predominantly three to five-story wood and brick structures. They contained housing, religious institutions,、uh, mixed-use commercial, some industry, and a highway.、Um, you might also be、uh, familiar with ground-level pairings of these things, right? The dilapidated housing on the left, new, new housing on the right, and on the right you see、um, high-end high-rises,、um, office buildings, and, and that new highway there. Um, so when I say that clearance falls between the cracks of existing discourse, I mean that quite literally.、Um, for I'm interested, and I'll see if my pointer works here, in really what went on right here in that gap between those two images. How did we get from one to the other? What did it look like,、um, and how did that process get experienced by people on the ground?、So、that is, what did progress look like when it was in progress? So in examining the process behind the creation of the built environment. I'm suggesting that it's not only what we build, but how we build that matters. And what does an examination of landscape creation through destruction tell us? Well, I narrate this story in three parts: bulldozers at war, bulldozers at work, and bulldozers of the mind. And I'll briefly outline each of these for you now. In the first part of the book, I trace the technological, economic, and cultural foundations of modern mass clearance. To mid-century theaters of war. In this way, I、um, reperiodize post-war American history, saying we need to start with the war itself, actually, and place this history in a more global context. What happened in American cities and suburbs、um, has some roots outside of those. War laid important groundwork for the domestic built environment that followed. That's often overlooked when we begin the st study of post-war cities and suburbs only after the conflict was through. And rather than serving as an interruption to housing construction and highway development, World War II was a critical catalyst to the shape of the post-war American landscape that followed. Viewing it in this way demonstrates how wartime innovations and exceptional practices can spill over into post-war domestic life. Now, World War II, as I'm sure you all know, advanced potent technologies, including atomic bomb, air power, and chemical weapons. The bulldozer stands alongside these. Such wartime to peacetime technological transfers are as relevant to World War II as they are to、um, more recent conflicts today.、Um, while the, the, the machines themselves don't necessarily travel from one environment to the other, the ideas and,、um, and the, the technological ideas and practices do. 
So to take this a step further, the flow of construction-related machines, men, and methods, and metaphors from the international battlefront to the post-war home front facilitated what we might think of as something of a militarization of post-war American space. And I'll say more about this shortly. In part two, uh, which I've called Bulldozers at Work, I examine the often, often separately treated histories of post-war cities, suburbs, and rural landscapes, showing how similar material and cultural processes characterized both, all three. Um, using case studies of land clearance in Orange County, California, building demolition in New Haven, Connecticut, and the combination of both practices for highway construction across the country, I show how diverse geographies shared a common quest for the blank slate. Uh, these blank slates were necessary uh, for the creation of new large-scale developments. So they all wanted to clear away in all these different places in order to rebuild anew, and the bulldozer was very good at this clearing away. Business proved critical in realizing these ideals. In their pursuit of post-war profits, equipment manufacturers and operators helped add buildings and land to the list of goods devoured by post-war mass consumption. Further, these parallel pursuits yielded related consequences. In each, celebratory tropes of rapid progress gave way on the ground to damaging processes of spatial destruction and environmental injustice. These costs were disproportionately distributed along lines of race, class, sex, and gender. And in the final section of the project, Bulldozers of the Mind, I show that just as bulldozers transformed the physical landscape, they also permeated cultural imagination. Uh, this slide shows just two examples of this, a children's book on the left um, and stills from a film of a house wrecking made by Gordon Matta Clark on the right. Diverse popular representations in films, photographs, um, conceptual art and children's books and toys both reflected and shaped clearance practices. Uh, they didn't just show it, they played a part in the acceptance and normalization of these things. They provide windows into how the public saw this work, and over time, these forms also helped voice more critical turns in, a popular, in popular attitudes as a culture of clearance gave way, at least somewhat, to a culture of conservation. These forms also illustrate the significance not only of architectural plans and drawings and photographs, but also of broader cultural discourse to the shape of the built world. So now I'd like to elaborate on an integral piece of my argument that cuts across all three of these domains. Uh, the ways that what we might call the bulldozer businesses, that is, equipment manufacturers, engineers, and construction men, built upon the war to make the post-war American landscape physically, economically, and psychologically possible. We can see these connections along at least four key dimensions, which I'll use to structure uh, the remainder of my talk. One, advancements in equipment technology. How did these carry over from one time to the other? Um, training of equipment operators rehearsal of the applications of large-scale clearance pra practices, and glorification of the bulldozer, its operators, and its practices in a positive, all-American light. All these factors, as I've already noted, were powerfully rooted in the preceding experience of war. So let's go there. And during World War II, thousands of U.S. manufacturers reoriented their factories to wartime production. Uh, they made tanks, airplanes, shells, and other armaments. You might think, for example, of uh, Ford uh, assembly lines churning out aircraft at Willow Run, just one famous example. But for many construction equipment manufacturers, wartime production demands were largely compatible with uh, pre-war equipment. Allied forces, for example, 
deployed more than 100,000 tractors during World War II. They equipped many of these tractors with bulldozer blades, turning them into the machine that we commonly refer to as the bulldozer, although technically speaking, it's just that blade that's the bulldozer. Uh, but throughout, as everyone does, I'll, I'll call the whole machine the bulldozer. Um, and as you see in this ad, this large-scale construction equipment deployment even led one manufacturer, International Harvester in this case, to call the entire conflict a dirt-moving war. During World War II, the tractor bulldozer proved so important to the military that the War Production Board ultimately asked Caterpillar, um, its number one construction equipment supplier, to stop producing diesel tank engines so that they could make more construction equipment instead. Caterpillar self-servingly suggested that this signaled the machine, the crawler tractor, was more important than the tank. <laughs> uh, General Patton made the comparison explicit when he purportedly stated that if he had to choose between bulldozers and tanks for an invasion, he would choose the bulldozers every time. And it's that kind of behind-the-scenes uh, way in which these uh, construction equipment participated that I want to tell you a little bit about tonight. Although I focus here on the bulldozer, the military commanded an array of construction equipment, uh, including cranes, shovels, scrapers. I'll show some of these things. Uh, a scraper is just a kind of bold device that moved dirt from place to place. Um, what's important to note here is that in producing these machines, equipment manufacturers simultaneously advanced their commercial product lines. So bold the bulldozer is really just one example of many pieces of construction equipment that are part of this story. But Patton wasn't the only one singing the bulldozer's praises. One of the most famous urban renewal developers, William Zeckendorf, uh, once called the bulldozer, quote, the best invention we got out of the war, uh, which is really interesting for an urban renewal developer to say. Uh, in truth, World War II spurred the invention of no new major pieces of equipment uh, in terms of uh, commercial construction equipment. Rather, it hastened the advancement of core existing technologies, the bulldozer among them. So it made them better. Um, ads like this one from International Harvester tout these advances. The ad declares that when harvester machines went to war, nothing changed but the paint. They were ready to go. These were good uh, pieces of equipment. Over time, however, in the machines they were producing by the heart of the conflict, everything, that is the technology inside them, had changed but the paint. In the pre-war years, there was little com consumer demand for improvements in slow-operating, medium-sized tractors that relied upon favorable weather and, and ground conditions uh, for their operation. But World War II was, quote, the crucible, as one equipment historian has put it, that stimulated the intensity of research activity necessary for improved machines. As the war came to a close, manufacturers could advertise to their customers who had been deprived by the War Production Board of buying any new machines during the conflict that they'd soon be able to uh, buy products that had been proven on tough battlefield terrain. So for companies like Caterpillar, which was one of the top 100 out of more than 85,000 um, war contractors, the war was not a distraction from business as usual, but an intensification of everyday life that positioned them well for the return to peacetime operations. Post-war construction equipment advanced accordingly. Um, on pre-war machines, cable-based operations had dominated, but during war and the post-war years, hydraulic controls became increasingly common. Uh, these provided fast responses, smoother cycling. New metallurgy made post-war machines more durable and stronger. Engines increased in power and speed, and shovels grew in capacity. These were all things that the equipment did before, but they did them better now. As popular science um, noted just five years after the war's end, the new, quote, big mouth machines could eat a ton of earth per second 
and literally move a mountain a day. The concurrent development of smaller but powerful machines offered the possibility for mechanization in uh, confined spaces. And all these wartime advances continued over time, such that between 1950 and 1960, just one decade, the Caterpillar tractor scraper combination increased its capacity by 30%, its horsepower by 50%. These gains more than balanced out associated growth in equipment price. So by the 1960s, earth-moving costs were still as low as they had been in 1929. Bulldozing was cheap, and this was key. Now, in addition to advancing equipment, we're also trained an army of men uh, to maintain and operate these machines. Caterpillar and International Harvester, in fact, uh, International Harvester, staffed their own battalions to service them in the field, keeping both the machine and the men's own skills in fighting shape. New soldiers also took up the construction trades for military purposes. They served as army engineers and as part of the construction battalions, or CBs, uh, for short. The CBs were a new division of the Navy, formed during World War II, they continue today, and their purpose was both to build and fight. Originally, the CBs men, tapped men who were often a bit older, but very skilled in, in using these machines. Over time, um, their the ranks extended to non-skilled, typically younger soldiers as well, as they had more demand than they had supply of workers. In total, more than 325,000 men served in the CBs during World War II. This is roughly equivalent to the size of the entire present-day Navy. When these men came home, they brought their new and refined skills with them. Take, for example, a CB named Oscar Williams, um, who joined the 133rd Battalion right out of high school, and learned to be a construction equipment operator there. So he's indicative of that second phase of, of people who didn't have the skills going in but were trained during the war. As he later recounted in an oral history interview after returning home to Michigan, quote, I went back to being an operator. I've got 40, 43 years in as a union operator, two and a half in the Navy, and I don't regret a day of it. Williams was one of many relatively unknown construction men who helped remake the wartime and post-war landscape, extending the skills they had learned during the war to their post-war professions. More famous um, than Williams was Bill Levitt, who recalled nights spent talking with his fellow CBs on the battlefront about how to complete the vast construction projects going on around them better and faster. This wartime experience, he later concluded, offered an unparalleled laboratory for experimentation and analysis with construction industry peers. After the conflict ended, as you probably know, Levitt put his experience to use clearing over 1,000 acres of potato fields for the construction of Levittown, Long Island, and other Levittowns as well. A firm run by another former CB performed clearance work for nearly every interstate highway in Southern California, while still other Army engineers founded a wrecking and construction company that completed urban renewal building demolition in New Haven, Connecticut. And there are many, many such stories of soldiers for whom wartime equipment experience translated into post-war employment back home. Now, the rise of post-war equipment operator schools helped supplement the skilled workforce that these projects required. One such facility was the National School of Heavy Earth Moving uh, Operation, established in 1955 in North Carolina. On the school's 71 acres of hilly soil, Classes of 30 students each spent about four to eight weeks in a boot camp-type environment learning the art of cut and fill. So that's still that overlap between the military and, and the construction. Most classes at Bulldozer U, as one journalist called it, uh, filled to capacity, sometimes months in advance. 
Over time, similar programs emerged around the country, such as at the Greer Earth Moving School, which is pictured here, um, as shown in Life magazine. So war set in motion a mobilization of heavy equipment operator training that only continued, continued after the foreign conflict was through. Now, of course, racial minorities, to say nothing of women, rarely partook of these employment opportunities. Um, this was a continuation of wartime labor practices in the military. For example, African Americans serving in the Army engineers during World War II typically performed more manual work with picks and shovels, while white men more often trained in heavy equipment operation. After the war, contractors and trade unions continued to segregate skilled positions. Minorities received a disproportionately low share of ensuing uh, construction employment, and the positions obtained were typically among the lowest-paying, non-unionized manual labor jobs, such as those depicted in the image on the left here of some uh, men with shovels clearing the rubble from a uh, demolition site. It wasn't until Richard Nixon's 1969 Philadelphia plan for affirmative action that these practices really began to change. Indeed, by 1973, when an earth-moving training program started in Alabama targeted to rural blacks, the program was unusual enough to merit a profile in Ebony magazine. That's 1973. This, uh, this work really commenced much earlier than that. Now, war not only advanced equipment and trained laborers, but it also effectively rehearsed and normalized practices of material and social clearance. As CBs and engineers implemented clearance upon foreign terrain, they turned battlefields into proving grounds for home front construction sites. On the Atlantic front, they cleared rubble-strewn cities and crushed any built impediments to forward advancement. Depictions of this work often equated the associated demolition and rubble removal with cleaning and rebirth, so destruction as a cleaning process. Planners and architects identified in this destruction opportunities for bigger and better new plans that would build, quote, order out of chaos, as one observer wrote. And we can see these uh, activities and outlooks mirrored on the post-war American landscape as clearance for urban renewal and highways proactively cut out the purportedly diseased cores of American cities to remake them anew. One observer even described the urban renewal process as, quote, armies of bulldozers smashing down acres of slums. So now the war had come to uh, U.S. cities. The Im impact was devastating. In places like New Haven during the 1960s, which secured more federal urban renewal dollars than, uh, per capita than any other city in the nation, one ev out of every six dwelling units fell. Now, the case of New Haven strikingly reveals post-war depictions of urban renewal clearance as modern and synonymous with cleaning. The city's mayor, Dick Lee, was so eager to showcase demolition that he was accused of purposely leaving vacant uh, buildings standing but untouched so we'd have sites readily available for demolition performances if someone interesting came to town, right? He could put on a building demolition for them. Um, in, in early 1958, he welcomed a Life magazine crew uh, who dubbed him the city cleanup champion in the piece they published. This image, image from that piece clearly indicates Lee's joyful participation in and hands-on endorsement of this work. Uh, another shows his celebration of the snow-covered blank slate that resulted once clearance on one particular parcel uh, was through. And, and note how Lee situates himself. The only thing he's blocking at all is the new construction. He wants us to see this clearance as progress in and of itself. Of course, the work of urban renewal building demolition was nowhere near as simple as such popularly circulated photographs suggested. 
Um, and I'll use more bureaucratic images from other renewal projects in other cities to give you a sense of this. Um, demolition produced massive amounts of rubble, uh, which was difficult and costly to dispose of. Some developers unscrupulously got rid of it by burying um, even organic material um, on site. It was only discovered when there were sinkholes developed over time, but getting rid of this material was a challenge. Um, other pieces of debris littered cleared lots for years, as it often took much longer to rebuild than to tear down, thereby imposing a different kind of blight on renewal neighborhoods uh, as these landscapes endured uh, for a long time. Although whole blocks were envisioned to come down and mass, difficult relocations and legal opposition led structures to come down in a more patchwork pattern instead, as shown as in this photo. Um, in, in this block that you see here, all the buildings are going to come down, but it takes actually about 10 years for the, to come down in entirety. So you have this notion of the armies of bulldozers clearing away acres of slums. It's actually uh, a much longer, slower process. Um, it's costlier. It, extends the trauma in the neighborhoods, um, and it doesn't happen in that swift way. Um, that slow process, having to bring in different equipment, often bankrupted um, demolition companies as well. Further, for those who had to live alongside demolished structures, those buildings that weren't torn down, the pounding of wreck wrecking balls damaged chimneys and party walls and conscribed neighboring citizens to live in, quote, the fear and dust of demolition, as one complainant put it. And this is to say nothing, yet, of the social hardships of those who were displaced entirely. Yet all these practices of demolition, clearance, and social relocation had been rehearsed and sometimes even celebrated during the preceding experience of war. Now, equally striking parallels exist between wartime land clearance and the reshaping of post-war suburban terrain, and I'll elaborate here a bit further. In the Pacific, CBs cut into mountains of coral and earth as you see here, to build flat oil tank pads and other construction. They also leveled jungles and coconut trees and sugarcane fields to make way for roadways, airfields, and military base construction. This image from a battalion logbook, which is a kind of yearbook uh, for a CB uh, battalion, pits road-building CBs and the bulldozers as engaged in a battle against the jungle. During the war, then, nature became just another enemy to be conquered. Similar practices realized on post-war American orchards and hillsides made room for home front, suburban, and highway development. The transformation of Southern California epitomizes this process, but I could show you images from lots of different places uh, to make the same point. Orange County was the fastest growing large post-war county in the country, but vast clearance underpinned that growth, reducing orange orchard acreage by half during each of the 1950s and 60s. Today, less than 67 acres remained from the nearly 67,000 acre peak in 1945. So here's the before and after suburban picture, I think, um, uh, that's comparable to the urban renewal pairing I showed you. But how did we get there? Well, statewide during the 1960s, bulldozers reportedly felled one orange tree every 55 seconds. I don't know if that's exactly right, but it's the, uh, the, the rapid pace of destruction. Um, afterwards, contractors burned this refuse on site, and Orange County was issuing an average of 500 burning permits per month by the mid-1960s before banning the practice. So the whole process of uprooting a tree, uh, removing the refuse, redistributing topsoil, cost only about $1 per tree, or roughly $100 an acre, again making the destruction of orchards an economical step in the home-building process. 
As the supply of affordable orchard flatlands dwindled, developers turned to the hillsides for new development uh, areas. This property was available in part because it hadn't made practical or economic sense to develop there. But now, thanks to advances in earth-moving equipment and methods, the increased use of engineers and geologists um, as consultants on home-building projects, and the spread of best practices in manuals published by the National Association of Home Builders, this was no longer the case. As that association declared in 1969, quote, there is hardly a site that cannot be developed to serve man. Now, although hillside um, leveling began with the clearance of trees and shrubs, cut and fill was where the real earth moving occurred. A combination of bulldozers um, and scrapers and uh, dug into steep hillsides and moved the excavated material to below grade areas. Earth movers on one typical project in Anaheim Hills, California, moved enough dirt to cover an entire football field more than two stories high each day. That's just one project among you know, thousands of projects going on. The contractor on this job began his work with a D7 tractor-mounted bulldozer, one of the workhorses of the World War II military. Heavy scrapers transported the excavated material while he's simultaneously beginning the compaction process. Sheep's foot rollers, which is what that device is at the far right, finished the task. Finally, bulldozers redistributed topsoil and fast-growing rye helped to cohere the soil. The result was the creation of step terraces that supported the flat building pads necessary for large-scale mass-produced housing, even on hillsides. Um, so here's the blank slate, really, writ large in the suburban landscape. But such intensive intrusions into the landscape came at a cost. Returning to the war for a moment, Seabees on one island ex experienced 19 landslides in just one day as they ex excavated earth to build a jungle roadway. More commonly, the consequences of uh, such construction work took the form of what post-colonial scholar Rob Nixon has called slow violence that only revealed its social and environmental costs over time. So you don't usually get um, the landslide the same day you do the construction work. You have to wait a while, um, but these things still happen. For example, clearance for roads and airfields brought not only immediate destruction, but also often permanently diminished some of the island's most fertile ground. And native populations lost their homes and livelihoods for standing in the allied bulldozer's way. In Hawaii, for example, the Navy crushed sugarcane and pineapple plants to plow roadways down a hillside. Although they didn't own this property, that posed no practical problem. As one observer noted, the pineapple people had no choice. Eventually, you must sell at the Navy price. So claiming and clearing property proved even easier in the South Pacific, where native homes were often of simpler construction, and colonial powers could deprive locals of property, owner, property rights to their land. One battalion logbook includes this picture that you see here of a CB demolishing an islander's home. The caption labels it destruction for construction. So destruction as the necessary first step, uh, first step uh, for progress. And we can see similar parallels in the legacies of post-war domestic construction projects. Aggressive hillside development often yielded erosion and culminated years later in landslides of its own. Here you see one such landslide on the slopes of a Southern California suburban home project. Ironically, the bulldozer is one of the machines often called in to clear the debris uh, that its earlier application has helped to have wrought. So bulldozers create more work for bulldozers <laughs> in these kinds of environments. But the social trauma of residential displacement has been even more enduring. This is an image of a home of a Latino-American family being bulldozer, bulldozed for urban renewal in Chavez Ravine in California. 
um, this site would become part of Dodger Stadium. Across the country, members of racial, ethnic, and sexual minority groups bore the disproportionate burden of clearance-based displacement. 60% of residents uh, relocated by urban renewal were non-white. Clearance, highway clearance functioned similarly. And relocation also proved challenging as federal assistance was inconsistently available. 90% of the housing destroyed was never replaced, and due in part to real estate market segregation, African Americans purchased only 2 to 3% of the new owner-occupied housing uh, constructed in the suburbs, essentially imposing a double blow. Uh, they were more likely to be evicted for urban renewal and less likely to obtain those new homes in the suburbs. Relocation also wrought harsh emotional impacts. Follow-up studies found that physically improved housing uh, never made up for the psychological losses of communities torn apart. As one displaced resident in New Haven recalled, quote, it was very traumatic for all of us, all of us. A way of life went. Now, post-war depiction, um, visual culture from the war and early post-war period, however, positioned the work, the machines, and the practitioners of clearance in a positive all-American light that helped to facil facilitate their popular embrace. For example, wartime advertisements suggested that exerting the bulldozer's pressure on the earth was akin to bulldozing over the leaders of Axis powers. Wartime journalism even made these allusions more literal, popularizing stories of operators who used their bulldozers to both level the land and actually battle the enemy. In one notable incident depicted in this cartoon on the right, a military equipment operator deployed his blade to crush a bunker filled with Japanese snipers. Oft-repeated tales like this one, um, and this story circulated in, in newspapers and magazines around the country, help make construction operators and their machines patriotic heroes. Wartime films, uh, if, I don't know if any of you have seen this one, offered further drama. In the climactic scene of the Fighting Seabees from 1944, CB John Wayne valiantly rides his bulldozer into battle. Although Wayne dies in the incident, which is relatively rare for Wayne in a film, the bulldozer carries on without him, crashing into an oil tank to create an explosion that sends the attacking Japanese enemy fleeing. Uh, representations such as these help turn the bulldozer operator into an updated version of the American cowboy. The bulldozer man, as we might call him, was strong, handsome, white, and rode a mighty beast to conquer new frontiers. This near full-page photograph, which appeared in uh, Life magazine um, at the end of the war, perhaps visualizes this best. So these associations continued into the post-war period as the bulldozer man moved on to conquer so-called urban slums and as-yet-undeveloped suburban landscapes. In the process, the labor of the bulldozer operator deploying powerful, powerful American-made technology offered a patriotic antidote to collective Cold War anxieties over masculinity. As one advertisement enthusiastically predicted near the war's end, quote, Mother Earth is going to have her face lifted. Sounds like a rather ambitious undertaking, doesn't it? But that's more or less what's going to happen after this world struggle is over. The Earth is in for a tremendous resurfacing operation. The construction, road building, and grading jobs for crawler-type tractors in that not-too-distant period are colossal. So, of course, you'll also note Mother Earth's uh, forlorn expression <laughs> as our cowboy plows over her surface, perhaps in prophetic anticipation um, of the resistance still ahead, and we'll get there. So post-war writing also depicted, depicted construction men with childlike admiration. One operator, quoted in a 1954 article, described the fun of operating a shovel. 
Speaking gleefully of the work of his mechanical cats, he boasted, the big machine gave me a sense of power. I, a man of average size, could walk up to a mountain and move it. Um, a new genre of children's bulldozer books also helped naturalize clearance by celebrating happy, helpful bulldozer operator, operators and their friendly mechanical mates. And maybe you've read some of these. Uh, you might think here of books like Katie in the Big Snow, I Want to Be a Road Builder, one of my favorite titles, The Affable, Amiable Bulldozer Man, um, who looks very satisfied with himself after toppling that building from 1880. So alongside Tonka trucks and model toys, which also first appeared in the early post-war years, these books helped younger, youngsters make sense of a rapidly changing world around them. Yet they did so in a way that positively reflected the interests of the equipment makers and contractors who sometimes even supported the publication of these books and the production of these toys. Uh, Caterpillar, you see they uh, permit their name to be used with the model toys there. They advised on the construction of these such that they could uh, be good illustrations of their products on sales calls as well as fun toys for kids. So building upon the strong foundation established by World War II and then carried over into the post-war period through more powerful technology, plentiful skilled laborers, advanced clearance practices, and positive popular representations, the culture of clearance ran rampant across the landscape. As the pace of destruction reached its peak during the 1960s, its harmful consequences became increasingly clear. The purportedly clean blank slates that clearance sought to achieve proved anything but simple in practice. In Southern California, boosterish bulldozing for new, quote, crops of housing depleted farmland instigated landslides, and furthered sprawl. At the same time, in New Haven, initially triumphal performances of clearance gave way to decades of dirty and damaging neighborhood invasion that ruptured communities and often yielded rubble-strewn lots. Vacant lots turned parking lots at best. And the interstate highway network spreading across the country sliced through cities and natural landscapes, dividing communities in its path. So overall, clearance of the natural and built environment um, all too often proved physically difficult, socially traumatic, and environmentally damaging. Thus, by the late 1960s and 70s, where I end my story, mounting criticism was developing. Uh, seminal written works by Jane, Jake Jane Jacobs and in the environmental spirit of Rachel Carson embody this growing critique. So not everyone's singing the bulldozer's praises by this point. But dissent also abounded in other media. For example, the bulldozer became a veritable paintbrush appearing in new forms of conceptual art, like earthworks and an architecture. Artist Michael Heiser appropriately donned a cowboy hat as he transported the machine to the desert to dig massive excavations that essentially stopped time, preserving the cuts and voids for all to see, instead of covering them over as occurs on the construction site. Robert Smithson uh, used a backhoe to pile dirt atop a wooden shed at Kent State, Kent State only stopping once the building's roof broke. Walter Di Maria was even more explicit when he painted a seven foot by 20 foot canvas in quote, caterpillar yellow, uh, and affixed a plate in the middle that read, the color men choose when they attack the earth. Artists like these offered subtle critique, reappropriated heavy equipment and wrecking sites, and even at times advanced social and environmental reclamation. The counter-narratives also increasingly appeared in more popular media. You knew I would return to uh, the children's books, right? Um, instead of the children's book, Tear Down to, Bear, uh, to Build Up, which was published in 1960, celebrating building wrecking, um, 
1970, we have this dream sequence in the book My House is Your House, in which the protagonist is chased by a bulldozer that will soon wreck her New York City apartment building. So a very different story. In the 1973 film, Soylent Green, trucks mounted with bulldozer-like shovels do the work of rounding up people to serve them as the ingredients for the film's mysterious foodstuffs. I hope I didn't spoil the movie for anyone. Um, <laughs> more graphically, in 1974, the comic book The Thing Called Killdozer depicted a possessed and fanged bulldozer about to eat multiple human targets. That bulldozer, it's alive, laments the male hero, and it's trying to destroy us. So these fictive depictions, while graphic and somewhat humorous, um, reflected changing attitudes towards the machine as broader social, political, and economic life was changing as well. Riots and arson wrought uncontrolled devastation in American cities, while sprawl spread rapidly outside them. Foreign manufacturers like Komatsu began to usurp American dominance of the equipment trade. And construction hard hats lent their support to a very different and controversial kind of war on people and land in Vietnam. So within this altered context, and in light of experiences gained on post-war clearance sites, Americans in this later time period were more commonly found battling against rather than with the once celebrated machine. Their protest helped spur legislative changes like the National Historic Preservation Act of 1966, uh, the National Environmental Protection Act, or NEPA, of 1970. Whereas the post-war period had seen the introduction of substantial federal subsidies for highway construction and slum clearance, as well as tax incentives for greenfield development, national policies introduced during the 1960s and 70s supported preservation environmentalism, and increased citizen participation in the planning and use of space. Although building demolition and land clearance certainly continue today, their character, pace, and scale have been changed by the processes and consequences revealed on the once welcoming landscapes of their widespread post-war implementation. Ultimately, the reforms those experiences spurred have helped to slow, although not to stop, the destructive progress of the American bulldozer. Thank you. <laughs>